Shabbat Shalom. Good to see everyone. Welcome to our Arab Shabbat service here at B'nai Shalom. I'm Monty Judah, Director of Line of Land Ministries, and we're glad that you uh, decided to join us this evening, and uh, we thank you for welcoming us into your home or wherever you're at as we begin this Sabbath. A uh, couple of quick announcements I'd like to share with you. Again, I want to remind you, registration is now open both for the Feast of Weeks coming up this June uh, and also for the Feast of Tabernacles that will be in the fall uh, here in Oklahoma. A uh, reminder that uh, uh, we are assembling a, a group of brethren to come and join us for the entire weekend, but of course, Feast of Weeks is just one day. Uh, and uh, June 2nd through the 4th, uh, if you'd like to be a part of that assembly, and we have brethren coming in from many locations to enjoy that, um, please uh, fill out a registration form. You can get that online. Same thing for the Feast of Tabernacles. Zealous Over Zion is our theme this year. We have a host of excellent teachers and musicians coming in for an eight-day festival, and it's always a great joy to get to fellowship with the brethren in that setting. Also, um, we have been receiving some very excellent comments on our recent Yavo issue. Eddie Chumney uh, graciously uh, wrote an article for us that followed up with uh, Eddie and I doing the interview about things coming up in the year 2017. Excellent feedback that we received from several people, and we are looking at ways to do other renovations to the Yavo magazine and make it even more interesting for the folks for it. You'll see some of those coming in the next few months, and we're excited about that. Uh, let me just make one other additional personal comment. Last week, of course, um, I shared with you uh, the news that we had learned concerning my wife Lynn and her being diagnosed with lung cancer. Uh, many of you have responded very kindly uh, praying for her, joining with us and praying and asking God to extend her life and to uh, heal her. And I just, uh, on behalf of Lynn and myself, I want to express uh, a heartfelt thank you and appreciation. Uh, you know, part of the reality of this is that we been in the business for a long time ministering to other folks that have to go through it well it's kind of our turn in the bucket and, um, and let me just tell you every every response uh, every prayer counts and we feel the effects of it Lynn certainly feels the effects of it she has been uh, uplifted and encouraged uh, mightily uh, by the kindnesses uh, shown to uh, her and to us and we just thank you very much we'll we'll keep you posted as progress moves along and we're trusting the Lord that his most perfect will uh, will be uh, carried out and that he'll do something wonderful that will be encouraging to us and to all of you as well. One, one of the interesting things that happens in these situations is it's tremendous to see how many brethren are pulling together and, and joining together to petition the Lord to, to, for this? It's, it's kind of too bad that we have to have an incident like this to get us to do that. But if that's the way the Lord wants to do it and get us to come together and love one another and care for one another, so be it. You know, uh, you know the Lord gets all the honor and gets all the glory. Amen? All right. I'm ready for Sabbath, and I uh, think you are too. So let's uh, go right to Kiddush and enjoy our Sabbath.
Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Please join our family as we welcome in the Sabbath. Blessing over the bread. Hamotzi lechem min haaretz. We give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch atadonai Eloheinu melech haolam. Hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. Amen. Yeah, it's all right. Now for the blessing of our wives. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you on this Sabbath day, and I thank you for the wife that you've given me. I pray that you would bless her even in the middle of the night when she sees about the ways of the household. I pray that you would bless her and encourage her as she teaches and educates the children. I thank you for the blessing that she is to me and to our home and to our family. And I pray that you would encourage her and strengthen her. Give her the product of her hands in everything that she does. And Father, I confess to her and to you that I love my wife. So Father, I pray that you would bless her with your very best blessing on this Sabbath day. We also lift up the widows and orphans, those without a husband or a father, at this time as well. So we thank you, Lord, in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen. Let us bless our sons.
Ephraim and Manasseh. May the Lord with you ever be. May he bring you home unto the land prepared for thee. May God bless you and grant you long life. protect and defend you. May His Spirit fill you with grace. May our family grow in happiness, so hear our Sabbath prayer. Now let us bless our daughters.
Bless the Lord who is to be praised. Blessed be the Lord who is praised for all eternity. Amen. And now the Michmocha. Michmocha Baelim Adonai Michmocha Nedahar Bachodesh Nohora Techilot Altogether, blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the way of salvation in Messiah Yeshua. Amen. And now the Veshamru. Veshamru ben Israel at Hashabat, Lasot at Hashabat, Ladortam, Burit Olam, Bene Avayom, Bene Israel, Odhit Leolam, Kishashet Yamim, Asadonai, et Hashemayim, Vayet Haret, Avayom, Hashemi Ishavat, Vayinafash. Altogether, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth. And on the seventh day, he ceased from his work and was refreshed. Amen. We all turn and face east toward Jerusalem for the watchword of our faith, the Shema. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad Baruch Hu 
Shem Kivod Malchuto Le'olam Vayed Yeshua HaMashiach Hu Adonai Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be His name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, He is Lord. Amen. And now the Ve'ahavta. Ve'ahavta et Adonai Ochecha, b'chol levavcha uv'kol nashicha, uv'kol me'odecha. Ve'heyu ha'devarim ha'ale asher nechim e'zavcha, hayom alevavcha. V'shinan tam lavanecha, v'tepardabam p'shivtecha, v'yetecha, uv'lechtecha, v'derechu shakbika, uv'kumika. Ukeshatam la ota yadecha, veheyu la totvo binanecha, uketatama mazuzo petecha uvisharecha, all together. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall speak of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Amen. Shalom.
Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us this Shabbat and who has called us to this place to praise his name. O Holy One of Israel, blessed are you, whose kingdom is forever and ever. We honor you in this place. We lift your name high. We dance before you, for you are holy. You are Kadosh. Shabbat Shalom. If you would, open your scriptures and turn uh, them to the book of Exodus, chapter 35, where our portion will begin for this week. And as you are doing that, let me do the blessing before the Torah. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher Barchabanu Mikol HaAmim Venatan Lanu Et Torato Baruch Adonai Nonten HaTorah HaAmein Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has chosen us from among all peoples and has given us your Torah. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Our portion for this week is entitled Vayachel, and it is when Moses, it says, Moses assembled the children of Israel after he had received all of the instructions from the Lord. We have this week actually a double portion. Here at the end of the book of Exodus, um, we have two portions that are sometimes split into two um, during Hebrew leap years. But for this year, uh, we have two portions, so it, it extends uh, all the way through the end of the book of Exodus, and our second portion uh, begins in Exodus chapter 38 at verse 21 and the second portion is entitled Pekude or this means the accounts of and this is and that begins the time in which they're talking about the inventory of the various items and offerings that were given for the construction of the tabernacle here at the end of the book of Exodus we have what appears to be a redundancy what appears to be a repetition of instructions that have previously been given we've heard many instructions in great detail from God speaking to Moses about how to build and construct the tabernacle, the curtains, the furnishings, the Ark of the Covenant, the menorah, table of showbread, the garments of the high priest. And here, at the end of the book of Exodus, we have a repeat of those words in excruciating detail. The first time that we hear it, it's God speaking to Moses and giving him the instruction to do these things, to call the children of Israel to construct this. And then here, at the end of the book of Exodus, we actually see the children of Israel taking up the offering of the materials to build the tabernacle, the calling of the artisans, Bezalel and Aholiav, to actually build and construct these pieces of furniture. And so we have, again, like I said, what appears to be some sort of redundancy within Scripture. However, for those of us believers who follow after the Lord, the God of Israel, who read the words and the instructions, I believe that you would agree with me that there is no idle word in the word of the Lord. Amen? The Scripture, there is no redundancy. There, everything has a plan, has a purpose to why it is there. And what we have to do is we have to try and learn and figure that out. Why do we have this repetition of the creation 
of the tabernacle. Well, what it means and what I've been saying for uh, the past couple of weeks as we've been talking about the tabernacle is that this is the construction of the tabernacle and the way that God has called for him to be worshipped and for him to dwell with us is paramount to our faith. There is an importance that, is, that goes beyond the words of the scripture, that goes beyond the construction of a physical tabernacle in the wilderness that the children of Israel did after leaving Egypt. There is a greater plan and a greater purpose to this tabernacle that God is desiring to dwell with us. Here at the book of Exodus, we, we've had many uh, portions talking about the construction of this tabernacle. If it was a leap year, we would have even another week next week to talk about the construction of the tabernacle even more. This is, we, we can talk about this and we're trying to understand what is the real purpose of what God is doing here. I've been saying before, and I've made some of the parallels here, that not only are we building a tabernacle in the wilderness for uh, God to dwell with the children of Israel, we're also laying the groundwork and the foundation for the creation of the temple in Jerusalem, where God will dwell and put his name and put his, uh, his stamp on the earth and his ownership symbol of the earth. But I've also been talking about how we're relating to God building a house, how he wants to, his desire to dwell with us and also to dwell within us. And I've been talking talking about how Yeshua has built a tabernacle inside us. And so here at this portion, I want to kind of put a capstone, if you will, on all of these concepts and all of this understanding. Why is this repeated in detail? Well, there's one theory that I have that well, why we have distinct instructions for building a tabernacle twice in the book of Exodus is that we're not talking about one tabernacle. We're actually talking about two tabernacles, not only a physical tabernacle being built, but a spiritual tabernacle being built inside of us. That God has called a plan to action, and then we have to execute the plan. There's all a pattern and a purpose to all of these things. This is the theme that we can talk about as we go through these last Torah portions here in the book of Exodus. I do want to read some of our scripture here, and I want to uh, remind you in this, and the beginning of our portion here kind of goes into this detail, and you'll start to see some of this as I read. So now, reading from the book of Exodus. Chapter 35, this is what it says, our portion. Then Moses gathered all the congregation of the children of Israel together and said to them, These are the words which the Lord has commanded you to do. Work shall be done for six days, but on the seventh day shall be a holy day for you, a Sabbath of rest to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall kindle no fire throughout your generations, um, throughout your dwellings on the Sabbath day. And Moses spoke to all the congregation and the children of Israel, saying, This is the thing which the Lord is commanding, saying, Take from among you an offering to the Lord. Whoever is of a willing heart, let him bring it as an offering to the Lord. Gold, silver, bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet thread, fine linen, and goat's hairs, and ramskins dyed red, badger skins, and acacia wood, oil for the light, and spices for the anointing oil, and for the sweet incense, onyx stones, and stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate. All who are gifted artisans among you shall come and make all the Lord has commanded. The tabernacle, its tent, its covering, its clasps, its boards, its bars, its pillars, its sockets, the ark and its poles with the mercy seat and the veil of the covering, the table and its poles, all its utensils and the showbread, also the lampstand for the light. <clears throat> 
its utensils, its lamps, and the oil for the light, the incense altar, its poles, and anointing oil, and sweet incense, and the screen for the door at the entrance of the tabernacle, an altar of burnt offering with its bronze grating, its poles, all of its utensils, and the laver and its base, the hangings of the court, its pillars, their sockets, and the screen for the gate of the court, the pegs of the tabernacle, the pegs of the court and their cords, the garments of ministry for ministering in the holy place, the holy garments for Aaron, the high priest, and the garments of his sons to minister as priests. We have a listing of excruciating detail of all the things of the tabernacle that the children of Israel are to, that are to create. Very goes into very detail. And then later on in our portion, we then have the details of the construction of those things. This is just the beginning of Moses recounting the words here. I want to remind you that this goes back to our Torah portion of Teruma, offerings that we taught uh, several weeks ago, talking about whoever has a willing heart. This is a theme of the building of the tabernacle, is that with the this is very closely tied to the heart. And I've already explained this before, how that we have a four-chambered tent tabernacle that was created in the wilderness. And we have a four-chambered organ in our chests that is a representation that was where we ask and pray to the Lord to come in and dwell with us. We invite him into our heart and for God to make tabernacle with us. This is a heart issue. This is what we're talking about here. That those who have a willing heart and that all of the children of Israel put their hearts heart into the creation of this thing. This is the plan of God. This is what he is calling us to do. I want to talk also again about my favorite Bible character, Bezalel. He's called in this uh, passage as well. I'm going to skip ahead to verse 30 here of chapter 35. As I read this, and like I said before, there's a redundancy here of all the things that are happening. However, whenever there isn't something that was repeated before, it sticks out like a sore thumb, if you will. As you read this scripture, then you, sometimes if something hasn't already been mentioned before, it actually stands out. So I'm going to read this passage about calling Bezalel the artisan of the tabernacle. And I want to see if you can point out what it is that has not been mentioned before. Now reading at verse 30. And Moses said to the children of Israel, See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And he has filled him with the Spirit of God, in wisdom and understanding, in knowledge, and in all manner of workmanship, to design artistic works, to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting jewels, for setting, in carving wood, and to work in all manner of artistic workmanship. And he has put in his heart the ability to teach in him and Aholiab, the son of Ahisamach of the tribe of Dan. He has filled them with the skill to do all manner of work of the engraver and the designer and the tapestry maker in blue, purple, and scarlet thread, fine linen, in the, and of the weaver, those who do every work and those who design artistic works. And Bezalel and Aholiab, with every gifted artisan in whom the Lord has put wisdom and understanding to know how to do all manner of work for the service of the sanctuary, shall do according to all the Lord has. As commanded. Did you catch it? Did you see anything that stood out that maybe had not mentioned before? We have the calling of their names. It says God put his spirit inside of them and they have all this skill. Let me go ahead and, and point it out to you. Something that was not mentioned previously. It comes in verse 34 where it says, And he put in his heart the ability to teach. 
that not only was he skilled in all of these things, not only was he have the ability to create and build all these things, the Spirit of God filled this man who did all of this artistic work. But it also says, and he had the ability to teach. He did not do all of it. But he had the, uh, the leading of the Spirit allowed him to share with others the skill that God has put into him. That he was able to do this. This ties into, directly, into when the Yeshua himself talked in Matthew chapter 5. Let me go there and let me read a passage that many of us are very familiar with. with many, especially in the Messianic movement. We have to quote this one on a regular basis, if you will. And it comes from Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Do not think I came to destroy the law of the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not one tittle or jot will, uh, will by no means pass away from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Do you see that prerequisite there? To be great in the kingdom of heaven, it's not just those that do the Torah. It's not just those that follow the commandments of the Lord and who read these instructions and know the words of, of Moses. But it's those that, have, that not only do, but teach others. That is what it is to have the spirit of Lord, uh, spirit of the Lord inside of you. To have not only the heart to do something, but the ability to teach it to others. And remember what it's, they said about Yeshua is that he spoke with authority, not as scribes do. He didn't just quote word for word what those have said and what Moses has said in the commandments, but he spoke with authority, and that he was a teacher. That's what it is to have the spirit of the Lord inside of you. That's a great thing that we can learn from Bezalel is that he had all this skill that God put inside of him to create these things, but also the ability to teach. God has a plan. God has a purpose in all of these things. The next thing I want to point out about our portion here is that during the construction of the tabernacle and the tents, they were the um, coverings of the sanctuary, if you will, that we had all these curtains were made and then these hooks and these clasps have to be created to connect it all together and there's one portion uh, one part of our scripture specifically verse 18 of chapter 36 where it says he made bronze clasps to connecting the tent together that it might be one that it might be echad connected together that this is all again this continues to tie together the entire plan of God in everything that God is doing God has a plan and a purpose to all of this. One other parallel I wanted to bring out as, the, as we talk about the physical construction of this tabernacle, there's really two main elements to the tabernacle. There's the sanctuary where the gold and all of the uh, very uh, fine uh, furniture was in there with the blue, the purple, the scarlet material that was like gold and beautiful inside there. And then there was the outer court where the bronze altar, the bronze laver was and white linen curtains surrounded that. That there's two distinct uh, aspects of the tabernacle. There's a parallel to that this tabernacle has to do with God's creation of the world that you have heaven and you have earth you have the heavenly treasures inside the sanctuary where the king dwells where we have a temple to God with gold and, and when we talk about heaven sometimes we talk about how the gold streets of heaven and that gold is tied to heavenly things we have that in the sanctuary where you walked in and the walls were gold and everything was beautiful when you were in there and then you have the outer court with white linen curtains and bronze, still still wonderful place to be, but there's a very distinct difference here. That we have a plan and a pattern in the construction of this tabernacle of the very creation of heaven and earth. 
There's so many other parallels of this tabernacle that goes all together where God has a plan and a purpose. And we serve a God of order, not a God of chaos. That there is, we have a repetition here because not only does God create a plan, but he sees through the execution of his plan. There is a pattern and a purpose and a design to all of this. And that is what, that is the God that we serve. I want to point out to you one of my favorite passages of Scripture comes from Isaiah chapter 46. We've heard this one many times before as well. Um, Here, uh, Isaiah 46 at verse 9. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man who executes my counsel from a far country. Indeed, I have spoken it, and I will also bring it to pass. To pass, I have purposed it, and I will also do it. We serve a God of order, of plan. He has a plan, he has a purpose, and he will execute that plan. One other thing about that passage that jumped out to me, the line that says, my, uh, the man who executes my counsel from a far country. Kind of an interesting phrase there. But one of the things that I brought out but didn't mention about Bezalel was that he was the great-grandson of Caleb, of the tribe of Judah. He was the son of Hur, the son of Uri. He was the great-grandson of Caleb. Caleb was not native-born. He was adopted into the tribe of Israel and that he was not a native-born of Israel. So that entire line and that entire lineage, all the way down to Bezalel, he has ancestry in other places, not native-born to Israel. So he who executes my counsel, he will call from even a far country that the man who does the plan of God in the creation of the tabernacle, not native born, that through his lineage, he came from a far country. So this passage as well can tie back in to our Torah portion that God has a plan and a purpose to all of these things. Um, I've talked about how the tabernacle is created in our hearts and that it's Yeshua who does that. Bezalel was a son of Judah. He was of that tribe and of that, um, of that lineage adopted in. He created the physical tabernacle. We then also worship another son of Judah, a son of David. He then builds a tabernacle inside us. There's a parallel to Yeshua and Bezalel there. There's another thing I haven't yet brought out uh, this year as well. The name Bezalel, his, uh, the gematria value of his name is 153. That ties into the story of the fish. When God calls the disciples to draw the fish and they count exactly 153 fish. That, no, that number has great significance. It's also the same gematria value of the phrase sons of the living God. And it ties also to the name Bezalel. There's a connection between Bezalel, the son of Judah, the creator of the tabernacle, the artisan, the designer of the tabernacle that parallels the tabernacle in our heart, that parallels the design of the entire heaven, of all of heaven and earth, that all of that ties directly to Yeshua and his work and what his plan and purpose is. There is a, this construction of this tabernacle. These are not idle words. These are the very fabric of which the way God created the earth. I read something else this week. That the rabbis say that the spirit that God put into Bezalel is the same spirit that God used to create the world.
The design, the purpose, the plan, everything that uh, goes into the creation of the world, God's perfect plan creation, how he created us, that same skill, that same spirit that God used to create the world is what he imparted in to Bezalel. Very fascinating that they make that parallel as well, yet sometimes we don't sometimes make the other connections and the parallels to the later parts of scripture that this character Bezalel and this creation of the tabernacle all ties back to the works of Yeshua as well. I do want to read and continue on. Our portion, uh, like I said, goes into excruciating detail of all of these things that were created. We make the, in uh, chapter 37, we have the same detail of the making of the Ark of the Testimony, the table of showbread, making the golden lampstand. And these repetition in this chapter is almost verbatim what is read in previous portions about the detail that went into the construction. Also, we have the making of the anointing oil and the incense, the making of the altar of burnt offering, the court of the tabernacle, the bronze laver. And then when it goes into the second portion of our double portion here, Pekude, and it takes the inventory of the tabernacle. This is a very fascinating passage that has not been heard before. It gives the actual details of the amount of gold and silver and bronze that were used in the tabernacle. Um, it talks about the offering that the children of Israel gave and of the gold. It says that there were 29 talents of gold and 730 shekels of gold. Of silver, there was 100 talents and 1,775 shekels worth of silver. And of the bronze, it says 70 talents and 2,400 shekels of bronze that all went in together. Now, we have some units of measure here that we maybe not, aren't familiar with. With shekel is a very small amount, such as the size of a coin. And then we have this amount called a talent. Well, we can actually learn how much a talent actually is compared to a shekel of silver. Because I mentioned in our previous portion last week about the silver, that the offering that was given by the children of Israel, that each man over the age of 20 offered a half shekel of silver so that they were counted. That is all the silver that was used. There was no additional silver that was donated and made an offering to the construction of the tabernacle. So we have an exact amount uh, is that the half shekel that it counted the number of men for the number of men that were counted were 603,550 men. So you divide that by two and you end up with the amount of shekels that were actually donated and used. What was left over is exactly 300,000 shekels and 1,775. The 100 talents of silver that were used that we can determine that there are 3,000 shekels in one talent of silver or of another metal. So you're talking about a large brick of metal, if you will. And I mentioned before also, this silver was used to create the bases of 100 pillars that was the base of the sanctuary. The sanctuary that was all gold, boards that were layered with gold. The bases of them were made with 100 sockets of silver. The additional shekels were used for some hooks for the outer, uh, the outer uh, linen curtain of the tabernacle. But a hundred of those talents of silver were used as the base of the tabernacle. This is the time in which every time that you see a pattern of three, at least this is what I recognize when I see the scripture. When you see gold, silver, bronze, you see a pattern of three. You see heart, soul, and might. You see God, the Father, the Son, Holy Spirit. I make that same sort of connection here that when you look at this, gold, 
gold is very much tied to the sanctuary, the dwelling place of the Father, Almighty God, that that's the heavenly things. Bronze was obviously represented in the outer court where we are, where we the um, interaction of us that we're allowed to go in and we worship the Lord with the bronze altar and what the bronze laver is supposed to represent to us. And I can tie, and I believe that that ties into the Spirit of God and how the Spirit ministers to us uh, in those ways. And the silver has many parallels to the sun, to Yeshua. That he was the he, silver is the representation of redemption, and that he himself was sold for pieces of silver as well, and that that is counts as the coins of redemption for us when we make that offering to the tabernacle. And so the thing about the silver is fascinating that the children of Israel were counted and were a part of this plan, a part of the creation. And now the rich didn't give more, the poor didn't give less, the old did not give more than the young did, that each man was counted with the use of the silver and that we are all a part of the plan of God, that we are all a part of the construction of this tabernacle. And it's through Yeshua and his redemption that we are a part of God's plan. Do you see the connections that are, that are taking place there? That all in the talking about the construction of this tabernacle, fascinating things in, that whenever we read this scripture. I believe there's also a greater teaching and understanding about these exact amounts of gold, silver, and bronze that somebody could do a lot more gematria value studies and different things like that, which I hope to do maybe one day, but don't have the time at this point. Um, but whenever you see numbers in Scripture, again, like I said, there's no idle words in all of Scripture. There is a plan and a purpose to all of these things. Our portion continues, chapter 39. Talking about the creation of the um, garments of the high priest, the breastplate goes back into those details as well. And then beginning uh, there at the end of chapter 39 and into chapter 40, the last chapter of Exodus, we're talking about the, con- the completion of the tabernacle. That when these things were, they were erected, they were raised up, it says this happened on the day, first day of the first month of the second year after leaving Egypt. So we're talking about one year after the Exodus from Egypt took place. And it talks about the detail of Moses going into the tabernacle and finishing it, making sure the, the position of the furniture, so all these things were created with the artisans and with Bezalel and Aholioth, but then Moses goes in and he finishes it. He moves it around, he gets it in the, just the right place, he arranges the tabernacle, it says Moses goes in, and at the um, very end here at verse 33, it says he raised up the court and all of the tabernacle and the altar and hung up the screen of the court and the gate, so Moses finished the work. Now remember, we got so many parallels here going. I already brought out the parallel between Bezalel and Yeshua. But we also have so many parallels between the life of Moses and Yeshua as well. That he was the intercessor between the children of Israel and God. And he pleaded with God for their, for their life to, to be spared even after they sinned. And so there's many parallels that God, Yeshua is a prophet like unto Moses. And so we have this parallel to, to Moses and Yeshua as well. In the same way that when we are constructing the tabernacle, if we've done all the things in our life to worship the Lord, to do the work of the Lord, and where we're ready for God to dwell inside of us as in our tabernacle, inside our personal temple, our personal tabernacle, that it's another 
Moses-like figure that goes in and finishes the work. That's the invitation of Yeshua into our heart, not only as a high priest, but as the designer and the crafter, and also as the intercessor between us and the Father. Many roles Yeshua uh, fulfills, that he goes into our heart and finishes the work. It's at that point afterwards, now I want to finish out the book of Exodus here, reading at verse 34 of chapter 40. Then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting because the cloud rested above it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Whenever the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle and the children of Israel would go onward in all of their journeys. But if the, Lord was, if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not journey till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was above the tabernacle by day, and fire was over it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all of their journeys. Once you have the glory of the Lord inside you, inside your tabernacle, then you follow his leading. When he tells you to go, you go. And he tells you to stay, you stay. And then when the glory truly has filled your tabernacle, that is the way that God leads you. And you follow after him and his plan his purpose. The glory of the Lord has filled the house and then the house follows after the words of the Lord. Amen. God has a plan. He's got a great plan, a great purpose, a pattern to everything that he does. I want to bring out one more thing that I want to conclude with as well, is that God has a perfect plan of order and a, a perfect uh, pattern in the things that he has commanded to do. He, has, he will execute his plan and his good work. The enemy has a plan as well. The enemy has a plan of chaos. Not of, he wants to destroy the order that God has created. He wants to do it in any way possible. One thing I want to go back to also, the golden calf. What was it that Aaron said about the golden calf? When his excuse, when he said he just took the gold, he threw it into the fire and out came this golden calf. That was his excuse. That is chaos. That is not a perfect plan. That is not a perfect design. There is no spirit of the, God, uh, of the Lord in him, one that would do that, and that's what would be created. That's not of the Lord. Things that have a pattern and a beautiful plan and purpose, that is how the Lord works. The enemy works the opposite. The enemy wants to eliminate anything that God has done. He actually has two tactics here. One, he takes something that is profane, and he wants to, in your mind, make it think that it's okay. He takes some sort of spiritual truth of God and he perverts it. He twists it. He then uses that as a tactic to lure you in when you go to a false man-made religion. You would go and they would say, oh, this is what we do in this religion. And you would think like, oh, that's nice. That's moral. That's good. That sounds like it's of the Father. So then you go following after that religion only to then be duped with all of the pagan practices and all of the uh, idolatry that would be within that religion. That's how the enemy works. He takes one thing and he perverts Perverts it. Tree worship. Trees are amazing, wonderful things that God created. They're beautiful, they're majestic, they provide food, all of these things. That's not to then take tree worship and then cause us to be like, oh, trees are, are, trees are amazing, trees are fantastic. That doesn't mean we're supposed to worship them and raise them above, up above any other aspect of creation. That is the work of the enemy. To take one thing, pervert it, and cause you to be led astray after something that is unholy and is profane. That's one tactic. His other tactic is this, is to take something that is holy, that God has called for to, to happen, to take place, 
and he causes you to question one thing about it. Just one thing. Here we have the word of the Lord. Our scripture here, this Bible that has all of these words. Now, there are I'm talking about the true words of the Lord. I'm not going to talk about uh, translation comparisons and issues and other words that have been added in. I'm talking about truly the words of the scripture and what this means and represents to us, the believer. The enemy wants to remove anything from this Bible. He would he would get rid of every Bible in the world if he could. But if he can't do that, then what he wants you to do is he wants you to question an aspect of it. Or that something, some part of it, some book of it, or some passage is null and void. Doesn't exist anymore. Isn't worth anything. Because if he can get you to believe that, then then he has the, he's already set the precedent for you to then question, well, what if something else isn't applicable anymore? What if something else, some other aspect of the scripture is worthless as well? He has compromised your faith in the word of the Lord. That is the tactic of the enemy. Anyone that would stand up and say that something, some word from Scripture, especially of Torah, would, that it's null and void, that it doesn't matter anymore, that it's simply idle words. Oh, they, they, it's repeated again. I don't need to read it again if, it's, if the same words are repeated again. You are following after. You, you, you can understand God's plan is perfect. The enemy's plan is of chaos and of destruction. That you're doing what the enemy would want you to do if you cause you to question those things. As we come to the book, at the end of the book of Exodus and our Torah portions will continue, this is the pattern of many people who have come back to a belief in the words of the Lord and the words of Moses and the law of Moses that you realize those are not idle words. We have uh, we've gotten to the point in some people in some uh, in their Christian faith that the stories of old, the, the story of Noah has been relegated to coloring pages of boats and rainbows for a bunch of children. And that the uh, story of Abraham and him being our the father of our faith is relegated to a little song and dance that we do. Now, there's nothing wrong with those things in teaching children, but those are not the pinnacles of our faith and our understanding in those stories of old. And the same thing with this tabernacle that's repeated in excruciating detail. Sunday school love it because it makes for great, uh, you, you know, felt uh, uh, little stickums that would go up and you'd create this design. And this is what it looks like here. But in truth of fact, the construction of this tabernacle is paramount to our faith. Paramount to understanding not only God's plan to dwell with us, but his plan to dwell within us. This is not something that we can just relegate to something that doesn't matter or that we teach our children that, but then that doesn't build us in our own and our most holy faith. That's the work of the enemy that wants to, to diminish what God has done. So let us remember in all things, these are not idle words, ladies and gentlemen. These are for our very benefit and our paramount and pinnacles of our faith in Yeshua the Messiah, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Almighty Creator of heaven and earth. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for your instructions. I thank you, Lord, for the end of the book of Exodus here in our uh, Torah cycle. Father, I thank you for the repetition, Lord, that you are teaching us, Lord, with your Holy Spirit, all of the things and the importance of this tabernacle and the construction of these things, Lord. Because of your desire to dwell within us, Father, I pray that we would take these words to heart. Just as the children of Israel used a willing heart, Lord, to give the offerings of the tabernacle for its construction, Father, I pray that we would open our hearts, give a free will offering to you, Lord, for us to build that tabernacle and for you to dwell within us as well.
Father, this is a heart issue. This is not about physical things, Lord. Even though a physical temple and tabernacle were created, Lord, we know and we understand the spiritual ramifications of these instructions. And Father, I pray that you would open our eyes and our ears to understand those things and take these things to heart and build us up, not only physically, but spiritually in our faith in you. We thank you for these instructions and these commandments. And Father, I pray that we would learn and that uh, those that hear would be edified by these words and these instructions. Continue to strengthen us as we continue on and as we uh, go through the rest of the books of the laws of Moses, Lord. That we would continue to be edified and strengthened in our faith in everything that we do. Father, we love you. We bless you. We thank you for all of these things. In Yeshua's name, Amen. Now the blessing after the Torah. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech Haolam Asher natalanu Torah Timet Veheolam natah betocheinu Baruch atah Adonai Nonten haTorah Amen Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the Universe, who has given us the Torah of Truth and has planted everlasting life in our midst. Blessed are you, O Lord, Giver of the Torah. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. Um, our Haftor portion for this week uh, parallels the um, double portion that we had from the Torah. We're coming to the conclusion of the book of Exodus, and of course it's talking about the final assembly of the tabernacle there. And so the parallel portion that goes with that is some of the assembly instructions for Solomon's temple, uh, and uh, that was done in Jerusalem. So we're in 1 Kings chapter 7, and even though this is a double portion, both of these Hoftor portions tie into those double portions. In other words, even if we had it split up uh, with uh, uh, one on one week and the next week, it would still be the same portion. So we're in 1 Kings chapter 7, which is part of the instructions that had to do with how Solomon's temple was completed and uh, built. And in the same way that the Torah portion brings out the attention of Bezalel, this young man who was the artisan, uh, for many of the decorative things that were part of the temple, this portion calls out another young man. Uh, his name is Hiram of, of Tyre, and Solomon uh, asks him to come and to do the great work of the work of working with bronze. Now, the uh, thing that uh, Bezalel did was he dealt with gold and silver and other kinds of fashioning, those things. This particular a uh, young man is going to specifically work on the work of bronze. And what you'll discover in this portion, it's going to focus on two things, uh, the construction of two things that was in Solomon's temple. The first is the pillars, the two large pillars that were just on the porch going into the sanctuary outside the doors. And so when you went up to the temple on the porch, you would see these very large pillars, one on each side of the doors going inside. And the second item is the incredibly large bronze laver 
uh, that was uh, there that had the water in it that the priests would use to wash their hands and their feet. And so let me take you through this just a little bit. I want to read uh, to you a little bit. You're going to hear some very technical descriptions uh, for this, which is likened to the Torah portion where there was a lot of very specific details of the assembly. Uh, and I want you to be um, thinking here for a moment. Ephraim emphasized there's no idle word uh, in the scripture. We're going to hear this very technical discussion of it. And, and I want, in the back of your mind, I want to allow yourself to ask the question what's the point? What, what's the real edifying part of this? What is, why, is, why are these words being given to us that we know every word is not an idle word, that every word is to edify our souls? What, what's the greater message? I want that question to linger a little bit in your heart and your mind as we read through this because in the course of my teaching that's what I'm hoping to bring out so that we can see why why do we have the scripture why did God want us to know this information so first Kings chapter 7 beginning at verse 13 it's going to go through uh, verse 39 the rest of the chapter let's begin at verse 13 please now King Solomon sent and brought Hiram from Tyre he was a widow's son from the tribe of Naphtali, and his father was a man of Tyre, a worker in bronze. And he, filled, he was filled with wisdom and understanding and skill for doing any work in bronze. So he came to King Solomon and performed all of his work. And he fashioned the two pillars of stone. Eighteen cubits was the height of one pillar. And a line of 12 cubits uh, measured the circumference of both. He also made two capitals of molten bronze to set on the top of the pillars. The height of one capital was five cubits, and the height of the other capital was five cubits. And there were nets of network and twisted threads of chain work for the capitals, which were on the top of the pillars, seven for the one capital, seven for the other capital. So he made the pillars and two rounds, two rows around on the one network to cover the capitals, which were on the top of the pomegranates, and so he did for the other capital. And the capitals were on the top of the pillars in the porch were of a lily design, four cubits. And there were capitals also on the two pillars, close to the rounded projection, which was beside the network, and the pomegranate numbered 200 in rows around both capitals. Thus he set up the pillars at the porch of the nave, and he set up the right pillar and named it Yakin, and he set up the left pillar and called it Boaz. And on top of the pillars was lily design, so the work of the pillars was finished. Now, before I go further, he's described these two giant pillars. Let me, in uh, maybe in terms a little bit more understandable to us, let me explain what we just read. Because this is kind of technical, you know, as to how, and, and if you go into a detailed study, it reveals a lot of things. But let me give you a jest of what we're talking about. These are bronze-like cylinders and tubes, and they are, uh, the circumference of it is very large. In other words, if a man were to come up to, you couldn't get your arms around them. That's how big these pillars were. And they stood uh, 18 cubits. We actually think it was 17 and a half cubits. We think that number is a rounded off number. And very large, and it went very high in the air. 
like we think these things went like 35 feet in the air. So we're talking about huge. Can't get your arms around it, and it goes way up. And then on top, the, the word used for capitals, it's kind of the crown that's up on top. And essentially, the description here, it, it, let, me, let me give you in slightly different terms. There was like a, a, a ball, a mass of material that, that we think actually sat on top of the, the cylinder. Some think that it actually inserted into it a little bit and then stood on top. Some say, no, it actually encased and came over the, the lip of it. But in any case, it was a very large thing, and it was basically round in shape. And in the center part around it was the ornate artwork of pomegranates, that there was a whole series of pomegranates shaped art artistically around it, and then palm fronds of palm branches, leafy palm branches, were on the bottom part of that row of pomegranates and up on the top, and it gave a kind of a fibrous network. Uh, you know, like if I could do my fingers here, the, the, the fronds of the palm, they would made this pattern all around. And there were like seven uh, palm fronds and, and uh, up on the top and down on the bottom. And, and, um, and then on top of the whole thing, there was these leafy, like the leaves and the petals of lilies. And these petals would set up so that what you looked at, you saw this shape that almost appeared, you know, and, and I'm, allowed me to use this term. It looked like a head, but it had a crown. So it appeared to be crown-like, uh, but it was really the very top of these pillars, a very ornate. And this is all out of bronze. Now, some Bible versions, they'll use the term brass, uh, but we really believe it was bronze uh, that was made here. Um, the bronze is um, uh, metal that's smelted together that usually includes copper and tin. Uh, to come together. We know that Solomon had great tin mines uh, down in the southern part of the Negev of Israel is, uh, is of great Solomon's tin mines. And so we think that was some of the substance that was used for it and the copper mines to make all the bronze that had to be done. Now, because of the massive size of this and because of the work that had to be done, they had to go get somebody who was specialized at doing this. Most bronze things that we find from antiquity are swords or metal attachments or fittings, uh, grates, things where fire can come up against and it's not going to distort the metal uh, because, it, you know, the, if you recall the, ta the altar uh, that was portable in the tabernacle of the wilderness, it was made of bronze. It was called the bronze altar. And they would make it out of that metal to where it was very heat resistant. Uh, and they would use it to burn fire on it. Well, they were using the same kind of metal. And the, this was very thick. And by the way, if you know anything about bronze, it's a very heavy metal when it comes together. Uh, and this, these objects were extreme, extremely heavy. In fact, the scripture goes into in the commentary on this is, is that there's no attempt uh, as in other uh, things that were created for the tabernacle and for the tem temple, there's no attempt to account for the amount of the stuff that was used here. In other words, how much bronze was present. There's no effort to do it. In fact, uh, one of the great mysteries here 
uh, about this, and I guess it goes hand in hand with the great stones of the temple itself, is these things had to be created in one location and then had to be transported and then set up to be in the temple. And the the smelting and the, the molding and the pouring of the these items to make these items must have been an incredible technical undertaking. And, uh, uh, and then being transported, the great weight of these things being transported down to Jerusalem uh, so that they could be set into the temple. And it begs a lot of questions about how in the world technically did they just do some of this stuff. Uh, to do it, but the fact it doesn't explain how it's done. It just says this is what was done, and the amount and weight of these things in those times, even they couldn't calculate the weight. Uh, they couldn't determine how much was actually involved in the process. But this young man, uh, he's charged with that duty uh, to do that. Now, the only thing that gives us any kind of hint. And any kind of aid into why why were these things done? And by the way, this is a distinctly different thing that was done from the tabernacle. If you'll recall, in the tabernacle, the the basic sanctuary was a tent, and they had the uh, the timbers, the acacia timber, they're covered in gold, and it formed the structure. And then the tent is laid over the top. The, this is completely different from all the stone, the doors, the, the structure of the sanctuary. These are set in front of the temple, either side of the door. These are completely separate things created that were fixed there in the permanent temple in Jerusalem. So it has a little bit of a unique character, and but they're given names. And it sounds like the names of people. Actually, they're not necessarily the names of people. They sound like the names of people, but they're actually words that have great meaning. Uh, for example, Yakin, if you walked in and the, the first one that you'd see on the right hand, this one pillar, it has a specific name. Yakin. What does Yakin mean? It means established in strength. The second one, Boaz, is actually two, two words put together in the Hebrew, and it means, in it is strength. Established in strength, in it is strength. So the theme of strength is what this is about. There is a special message about strength that is, confronts you as you come to the doors of the permanent sanctuary. So the question is, well, what what does that mean? I mean, how, what, what is God doing here? Why, why do we have this in the temple? Let's step back for just a moment. We'll come back to our portion here in just a little bit. Let's step back. Strength is a very important spiritual concept uh, in our spiritual lives. It, there is the, the opposite of strength, of course, is weakness. One of the things that we learn, spiritual laws that we learn uh, from the Lord, is that uh, weakness is that which leads to death. Strength is that which leads to life. So we're talking about some, of some core value things here that are taking place. And that uh, what we, when we come before the Lord, 
um, that we want to maximize the strength of the Lord in our lives. That one of the great spiritual lessons that we're taught when you're discipled and you mature in the Lord is if you try to walk this life out, if you try to live your life in your strength, you will not prevail. You'll get going, and then you're going to find out that all of a sudden your strength leaves you, and then you're left with weakness, and it doesn't work out for you. A, a, a runner, you know, he has a certain amount of strength to run. Now, he goes out and he uses that strength, and he runs, 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 and then finally he runs out of his strength, and he becomes weak, and he has to slow down and to the point where if he, he keeps persisting, he can't run anymore. And... Uh, one of the great spiritual lessons that we learn is that if you're going to live this life that God has given to you, you cannot do it in your strength. You must do it in God's strength. That God is the one who empowers you to. And in fact, our faith is to be based in the power of God, the strength of God, not in our strength, not in our power. And for those of you who, uh, you know, I have experienced this, I'm sure others have a similar testimony. There have been moments in my life where I pursued a particular thing. And um, that I chose to kind of do it on my own. I chose my own will. I, I, I didn't, I, in fact, I'll tell you in one case, it was, uh, I really didn't want the Lord's help. I, I wanted to do it. And I learned... Um, to my chagrin that my strength wasn't enough it just didn't get the job done and I was faced with the fact that I, I was unable uh, to, to complete what it is that I really had hoped for the fact that I had hoped for it the fact that it was a good idea it, it still wasn't sufficient it, 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 it didn't it didn't um, complete the task correctly but I have learned many other times in my life, that if I pursue a particular thing relying on the strength of the Lord, there's great success. And even though I'm kind of weak, uh, it, we, still, uh, we still accomplish things because I did it in the strength of the Lord. I will share a personal uh, confession with you, personal testimony, that every day that I get up to do the work of this ministry, I ask God to strengthen me to do it. Um, that is the reason why I've been able to keep going. Um, when you first start out as a task and you're a young guy, well, you've got a lot of energy, you've got a lot of strength and so forth. But, but uh, quickly I learned that if I'm going to continue to be steadfast and faithful from day to day, month to month, year to year, I have to do it in the strength of the Lord. So every day to come in and do the ministry, I say, Lord... I'm not able to do this except by your strength. Give me the strength to do the work you want me to do uh, for you. And that's how he's able to maintain my attention, my energy, keep me empowered, keep me not be fatigued, not, uh, you know, run out of patience for things. I continue to persist. I continue to hang in there. I continue to be steadfast because I'm doing it in the strength of the Lord, not my strength. If you'll recall John the Baptist, 
in his ministry. He specifically addressed the fact, I need to be made weaker so he may be made stronger. And for those of you who've had that spiritual lesson in your life, you know that to live the life of the faith, your person, who you are, needs to diminish so that the, the space of who you are is occupied by the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of God then uh, is what empowers your life to, to live. So these two pillars, as you walk up to the temple, which are pronounced, you see them immediately. Guess what the message is? That same message that is this base message of how to live the life. In this sanctuary, it is established in the strength of God. In this sanctuary is strength. You will find strength. You will get the strength of God by coming to this place and being a part of what God is doing. That is the overpowering message that is coming across. And to symbolize that, to to command your attention, to get you to focus on this very important uh, personal concept of walking out uh, the life and the faith in God, you are confronted by, and, and your first impression is the immensity and the strength of these bronze pillars. I mean, they're compelling. If you'd have been there uh, and walked up to them, it's like you'd want to touch them. And the, and the moment you touch them, I said, this thing isn't going to move. And how did they get this here? And, and the strength that was required to put these things here. And the strength that would be take to take them out. In fact, Jeremiah, in his accounting of the destruction of the temple by Babylon, spends quite a bit of time talking about what it took for the Babylonians to destroy those two pillars. That it was an intense, massive effort to bring those down in the destruction of Solomon's temple by the Babylonians. And again, it's the picture of this great strength uh, for it. For you and I, um, it's a reminder of this basic spiritual lesson I'm sure that many of you have been taught uh, about that uh, for us to live our life from the mortal part of us to the emotional part to the spiritual part, we do so <clears throat> successfully in the strength of the Lord uh, because we don't have sufficient strength within us to accomplish those things. Our, our strength will give out. And so we need the strength of the Lord. We need the power of the Lord. Uh, here's, a, here's another example of living Torah uh, for me. As I shared with you last week about the news of my wife, this week we are, uh, Lynn and I are being confronted with the, the, the nature of this disease, the nature of what she's having to go through. Uh, she can sense it, I can sense it uh, dramatically. This disease, this, this trouble that we have, it's trying to produce weakness. It's trying to take the strength away. And in, in the case of her mortal physical body, it's diminishing her ability to breathe correctly 
and to get the necessary oxygen and, tra- and transference so that she has the strength to do things. She finds herself increasingly becoming weak. She needs to rest more. Uh, it, it, she easily can fatigue uh, in doing a task. And, so, and that's the nature of the disease, is to make you weak. But here's, the, here's the, the wonderful spiritual lesson in this. That's just the mortal body. Since we weren't operating on our strength, and we're operating on the strength of the Lord, then we're going to rely on His strength. And even though we recognize it's the physical, mortal body, His strength is able to empower and do things that our strength can't do. So, the living Torah lesson for for Lynn and I this week on this Torah portion is the Lord's given us a very powerful testimony, twofold testimony, that there's strength in Him and He's established in strength. And that's what we need. We need His strength to be able to live, to maintain, and to continue on. And so that's part of the prayer that I have been praying every day since I've been in the ministry. And it's the same prayer right now that Lynn and I are praying that the God would strengthen her each day. So that each day she operates in the strength of the Lord, not in her strength, which the disease is trying to take away from her. So, this is the first segment of our portion that talks about these two pillars. Now, I'm going to shift gears. Let's look at the second item that was in the temple in Jerusalem, in Solomon's temple, which was the laver. So, uh, let us now turn to verse 23 of 1 Corinthians 7. Now, he made the sea of cast metal, ten cubits from the brim to brim, circular in form, and its height was five cubits and thirty cubits in circumference. Now, it's a laver, but it's so large, they called it the Sea of Solomon. I mean, this thing was huge. It was like your own portable swimming pool. And in fact, what we'll learn here is, not only was it large enough, For a multitude of priests to come up and wash their hands and their feet. This is where the priests used to do their mikvah and be immersed. It was large enough that it was used for immersion purposes by the priests. And there's a large amount of volume of water that was in this and as part of this. A very large volume of water. So it's... What you're getting ready to find out is they built a bronze, mobile um, swimming pool, in effect, that was, that was moved in here. Let me go on with some of the further discussion about it. Um, verse 25. It stood on 12 oxen, three facing north, three facing west, three facing south, and three facing east. And the sea was set on top of it, and all their rear parts turned inward. So this thing is so big, they made life-size-looking oxen. Three facing to the north, side by side. Three life-size oxen in bronze. Three more to the right, facing at a different compass point, and to where all four compass points are done. And And this basin of this labor sits on 12 oxen. So you can imagine, this thing was massive. Uh, you got life-size bulls uh, with a basin sitting on top. So, you know, this is huge. 
And this would have commanded your attention. When you walked into the temple, you would have gone, oh my goodness, this is, this is immense. This is incredible. Um, going hand in hand with the two pillars, the altar before it, the whole size and scale of the sanctuary, and so forth. These were mighty and impressive things. This was Solomon's temple. He goes on further to say, verse 26, and it was a handbreadth thick. A handbreadth. The breadth of a hand. It's that thick. The metal is that thick. And the whole thing is that thick. A whole handbreadth. It's immense. Verse 27, then he made ten stands of bronze, and a length of each stand was four cubits, and its width was four cubits, and its height was three cubits. And it was, and this was the design of the stands. They had borders, even borders between the flames, and on the borders that were between the frames, uh, frames rather, were lions, oxen, cherubim, and on frames there was pedestal above and beneath the lions and the oxen were wreaths of hanging work now each stand had four bronze wheels with bronze axles and its four feet had supports and beneath the basin were cast supports with wreaths on each side and its opening inside of the crown of the top was a cubit and its opening was round like the design of a pedestal a cubit and a half and also in its openings were engravings and their borders were square and not round and the four wheels were underneath the borders and the axles of the wheels were on the stand and the height of the wheel was a cubit and a half and the workmanship of the wheels was like the workmanship of a chariot wheel their axles their rims their spokes their hubs were all cast now these were the four supports of the four corners of each stand and its supports are part were part of the stand itself and on top of the stand were the circular form half a cubit and on the top of the stand it stays and its borders were and engraved on the plates of its stays and on the borders cherub and lions and palm trees according to the clear space on each with wreaths all the way around and he made ten stands like this this all had one casting one measure and one form and he made ten basins of bronze one basin held forty baths each basin was four cubits and on each of the ten stands were one brazen. Then he set the stands, five on the right side of the house and five on the left side of the house, and he set on the sea of the cast of metal on the right side of the house, eastward toward the south. All right. A lot of technical discussion. Let me summarize. Let me see if I can simplify for it. So you have in your mind's eye, there's this very large labor, mini swimming pool, sitting on 12 life-size created oxen those are all sitting on a large box a box that holds the oxen and the labor and this box is supported to where that along the sides of it it has the imagery of cherubim angels it has the image of a lion and and uh, the, the fronds of uh, the leafy things and uh, what was the other thing that it had there the um, I want palm trees yes the palm fronds and so forth so it's decorative there's a box that everything sits on there's a base and then that base also has affixed to it axles and wheels so 
imagine this very large labor, okay? Then imagine these 12 oxen created, and, and the basin is affixed to them, sitting on their backs. And then the 12 oxen with all their hooves, they're standing on a box that's been created that has to obviously be a, a even stronger box than all the other stuff above it because it's going to support it. And that box gives the structural integrity for this entire thing to become a unit so that we can affix axles and wheels to it. And these had to have been massive wheels. And this is called the Sea of Solomon. And this is the labor that is now in the temple. The last part is there was something else that went with it. That he created ten specific standalone uh, smaller baths. All right? Now, uh, as I said to you before, the giant laver could be used for immersion. But if you imagine the size of this, how do you walk up here and wash your hands? If you're a priest, how, how do you walk up and do this? You could do immersion, a special immersion in it. And so he created ten then smaller lavers uh, round and about. And so when the priests would come up, they would actually go to these smaller ten units that was associated with it. And many um, scholars believe that there was a kind of a plumbing that was attached to this so that water flowed in and flowed out, and so it was living waters in these all the time. That it wasn't just a basin of water, that was, there were water flowing into it, water flowing out of it, um, and um, that there was, the, the waters were always remaining fresh and clean. Uh, in these things as they would wash and, and uh, do the things that they would do. And that these ten uh, units down here, the bronze and so forth, were used for keeping everything clean in the temple itself. It's from this that they think that some of these labors actually was the collection, the temporary collection point for the ashes off of the altar that some was for the washing and cleansing. Some of them were used for when um, they would do a sacrifice and they needed to just quickly wash some of the parts. In other words, this was a series of wash basins. And when it says that it had four baths in the, each one of these, a bath is constituted as the amount of water that you need for a full immersion. How much water would you need to immerse? So each bath is constituted as a large number of gallons of water, and each one of these ten basins had four baths in them. So you could uh, do, it, it held a lot of volume. It held water. It could, uh, you know, be a working element of keeping the temple area clean, uh, helping with the pre preparation of sacrifices, the washing of the entrails before they were put up, onto the altar, the washing of the priest's hands and feet. You do realize, of course, that when the priests are doing the duty of, of preparing sacrifices, they need to wash their hands and their feet frequently. These basins were set up to set that up. It kind of reminds me, for those of you who have been to Sukkot before, one of the things that we do for the people who come to eat the feast is uh, we don't supply... Um, 
paper plates and and uh, so forth for everybody. We we tell everybody, you bring your own cup, you bring your own bowl, you bring your own silverware uh, for it. Well, they need a place to wash their things afterwards, and so we set up basins, very large wash tubs. Uh, outside of the dining tent and where they can take their dishes over and immediately uh, get rid of the garbage off them, immediately wash them, rinse them, and sanitize them. And so we set up a series of basins uh, for them to do it. And in the same sort of way, that's kind of what was going on here. It wasn't just one big laver. There was a series of ten basins that were set up that would aid with all of the functions that were going on in that. Now, Again, so this portion, um, what, what is it really telling us? That the temple service, the operation of the temple, was a very large thing that it was, a, it was set up in a corporate way so that the priests could come in and do the work of helping any of us uh, that we came to worship the Lord, that, that we had literally all of the uh, uh, functions supported for people to present their gifts to the Lord, to worship the Lord, and to complete all of the tasks of the worship in the temple. And looking at this, you know, me coming from the background of being an engineer, uh, a logistics engineer, I'm intrigued by the process, not only of the construction of all of these, but the process of how we would uh, all of the people would come and worship the Lord. And uh, it's one of the exciting things that I get to do in setting up the, the conferences and the appointed times for people to come. Because what do we work on? You know, to tell you the truth, I spend most of my time working on, well, what's going to be the process? How do we get the people through? How can we make sure their needs are met? Uh, how, how, in other words, what are all the steps that, everybody's, that we need to have everybody do so that they can have a successful worship time and come for the services and things like that. And there's a tremendous amount of work that is done in the background by a big team of people uh, to make this happen. Well, as you look at the temple, there were many tasks for the priests. There were many tasks for those who came and helped serve the temple and the construction of these elements so that they could minister to all of the people. And it's part of the work of the Lord. It's not just that you decide in your heart, okay, I'm going to go serve the Lord. No, there's work to be done. And, and so we encourage and we teach and we train people that because it's a work of the Lord, don't come here with your ego and don't come here with your ideas of thinking that you know how to do all this stuff, because I guarantee you, you don't. It is the Lord's who does it. And oh, by the way, for you to be successful and accomplish this, you must do it in the strength of the Lord, not your own strength. If you come and you're in your enthusiasm and your zeal, do it in your own strength, you, you will falter. You will fail. Um, the real path here, the real lesson is that it's a great work. But we need to do it in the strength of the Lord. Amen? So that's our portion for this week as we conclude the construction of the tabernacle and the construction of the temple. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this Sabbath. Thank you, Lord, for the teaching of the construction of your house. And, Lord, show us um, the work uh, you know, before us uh, for us to walk out our faith before you. 
And Lord, we confess to you, we have no strength to do the things that need to be done. Um, our strength comes from you, Lord. And so we ask you this day, at the beginning of the Sabbath, Lord, would you strengthen us and strengthen all of your people, Lord. Teach us how to operate in your power, not in our power, not in our strength. And uh, this week, Lord, as we have the Sabbath, I pray, Lord, that you would grant strength to my wife uh, for her to be strong um, and not weak uh, from all of the things that are happening in our life. We pray all of this in the name of Yeshua Messiah. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you shalom.